We are uh, continuing in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 today. And um, this morning we have one of the few verses in the Bible which sort of summarizes the whole gospel in one verse. We have it in John 3.16. We have it in Isaiah 53 where it says... All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we have it in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Let me read verses 18 and 19 to you. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So that second verse there is where what I referred to as summarizing the gospel. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And really, verse 18 says the same thing. In fact, there's the that is in between them. So he's just repeating himself. He's saying the same thing twice in different words. And the, So he's saying two things, and he says it twice. The two things he says, first, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. And two, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So let's talk about each one of those separately. First of all, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. You know, Jesus came and he did many wonderful things. He healed sick people. He reached out to those who were lowly and forgotten. He rebuked the proud and the self-righteous He taught many good and powerful things. But the main thing that Jesus did was to reconcile the world to God. That was his high and first calling. Now this implies that people had a need for reconciliation with God. Reconciliation is the solution to estrangement or to alienation. Maybe even to warfare. If God and man were not indeed alienated from one another, reconciliation would be meaningless. The fact is that the sweet harmony which God and man enjoyed together at first was quickly broken when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve And they turned against God and set themselves at enmity with their maker, the fountain of every blessing. Romans 1, 18-32 discuss this process. It says that people knew about God, but instead of honoring him as God or giving him thanks, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools. And instead of worshiping the Creator, they sought after created things and found that made their lives up with created things. You see, at the heart, man's problem is not moral, it's relational. The moral side of man's problem is the fruit of the problem. It's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem lies in man's rebellion toward God. In man's alienation from God. Rebellion is a a relational issue. You don't rebel against a chair. You don't rebel against an event. You don't rebel against a force. You rebel against a person. And it is this alienation that Jesus came to rectify. Now how did God reconcile the world to himself? Paul gives us some specifics here, though just briefly in verse 18 and 19. First he tells us, That God did it through Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So God did it. It was not done by man. It was not even a joint venture between God and man. God did it. And he did it through Christ. And second, he tells us that God did it in Christ by not counting their trespasses against them. Did God just decide, ah, I'll overlook their sins, their rebellion? Did he just decide to let them off? Not at all. He's a just guide and he cannot let the guilty go free. His word says that over and over again. But rather, Christ died on the cross. And in doing so, he took our place Suffering the wrath that we deserved for our rebellion. This is how God did not count men's trespasses against them on account of Christ. For first and foremost, this is what Christ came to do. He was born to die to reconcile the world to God. While we were his enemies, Romans 5.10... While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And notice how this verse is worded in verse 19. Not counting their trespasses against them. It doesn't say he saved the good people. It doesn't say... He made them good and then saved them because they no longer had trespasses. It says that through Christ, God did not count their trespasses against them, implying that they still had trespasses, but that their trespasses were no longer held against them because, of course, they had been placed upon Christ. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Romans 4, 8, quoting Psalm 
32. God doesn't take our sin into account against us because, you see, he's taken our sin into account against Christ. We do not get received by God on account of our not having trespasses, but rather because, through what Christ has done, our trespasses are not counted against us. And then secondly, the verse tells us that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus came to reconcile men to God. And the tool that he's chosen for bringing this to pass is us. First, he reconciles us to God. And then he uses us to reconcile others. Every believer in Christ is a part of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, God could have done this himself. Or he could have done it through angels. But he didn't. He chose to do it through us. Through those who have been reconciled to him. Let's unpack what this ministry of reconciliation is in more detail. It seems to me that there are three parts of the ministry of reconciliation. There's communicating the truth of the gospel. He says here, he entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So there's a body of truth, there's information about God and about what he did that's a part of the ministry of reconciliation but then there's also reflecting Christ in the way that we live both in the people that we um, speak to in front of them but also in in a you know in when we're relating to them but also just the way we live so that as others observe us they see Christ And then the third part is praying for God's power to transform others. Because we know, as we've seen before, that the mere information, the gospel, doesn't have power over people unless the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of those who hear it. Now these last two, reflecting Christ in our lives and praying for God's power, those aren't generally controversial. If there's a reluctance for us to do this, this work, generally, I mean, maybe we might be reluctant to pray, but usually the reluctance is in the first part, the communication of the truth of God, the truth of the gospel. The problem with this one is that when you tell others about Christ, at least in our general experience, I think probably the general experience of Christ's people down through history, there's a greater chance that your hearer is going to be offended than that they are going to be receptive. There's a greater chance they're going to be offended than be receptive. Many people won't accept God's reconciling work through Christ. And they'll push back and they won't like us and they'll 
be, be angry at us for imposing on them or disturbing them with these ideas or whatever it is. And that makes it a difficult thing because it hurts. We don't like people not liking us. We don't like people saying nasty things. We don't like getting people upset. We don't like people offended at us. The reason many people react so negatively about this towards the gospel is that they refuse to accept that they stand guilty before the God of justice, worthy of his righteous wrath. It's usually not because this is too good to be true, although that would be a rational response. But it's usually because they're offended by the notion, at least in our day, that they stand guilty before a God of justice. And of course, that's just further confirmation of their sin. That he refuses, that the people refuse to acknowledge their sinfulness. And they want to blame everybody else but themselves. In fact, they want to blame God. The real problem in this world is God. Not me. This is the way it was for Paul, isn't it? Before he was a Christian, remember, he didn't think he needed to be reconciled to God. He thought he was just fine. He thought everybody else was the problem. But then he met Jesus. And he realized things that he'd never realized before. And he was convicted You know, it's funny in that story, God speaks to, to Paul out of the heavens, you know, just speaks to him. And usually, you know, uh, if God speaks to you, I mean, there's a man that believed in God. It's not like he was, you know, some pagan or something. And God spoke to him, but Paul's question was, who are you? Who are you, Lord? He was so far off in his thinking about God, even though he, under, you know, he knew the Bible so well. But he was so far off that he didn't even know who was talking to him. Who are you, Lord? You know, it's hard to proclaim the gospel and have people, th- you know, judge you for being arrogant or, or. Uh, be offended by what you say, but if, if we're not willing to be pricked by thorns, we're not able to gather roses. It's just a part of the ministry of reconciliation. And um, something that goes along with it and we have to get used to. It's actually, in the scriptures, we're told that, you know, if people react Poorly, then rejoice and be glad, Jesus said. That's the way they treated the prophets. This is the way it's always been. This isn't something new in America today that people react negatively. The prophets of the Old Testament got treated this way. They didn't want to hear. They were offended by what they said. Read the stories. It's amazing sometimes. Jeremiah thrown down in the dungeon because the kings didn't want to listen to what he was, trying, what he was saying to them. From God. It, it may be surprising when you look at the Bible 
that this ministry of reconciliation, that there's not more commanding, there's not more urging. You know, very rarely in the, in the New Testament is this laid upon us as a burden that we need to go out and be com- pro- proclaiming the gospel. Certainly Paul feels compelled to do it, but he doesn't then say, and if you don't feel compelled to do it, you have a big problem. It's more like it's one of the great privileges that we have to be a part to be entrusted, to be agents of reconciliation in the world. It is a joy to those who have been reconciled to work towards others' reconciliation. Let me get back to something that I said earlier. The thing that's wrong with the world and this is in my last, not my last point, but moving away from those two points uh, that we've been, God in Christ was reconciling us to uh, the world to himself and God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The thing that's wrong with the world today isn't so much moral as it is relational. Mankind has turned his back on God and God is righteously indignant. In like a nation of zombies, I don't usually use the analogy of zombies, but this one seemed like it was the perfect opportunity. Like a nation of zombies, America is rushing down the path of immorality. But immorality isn't our real problem. Politics isn't our real problem. Our real problem has to do with our relationship to God. The thing which is wrong with you and me is not ultimately moral. It's relational. It's so sad to see people absorbed in trying to fix some area of their lives. Their singleness or their bad habit or their diet or their finances or their parenting skills when their real problem is with God. And I've seen so many people just become so disturbed and absorbed in fixing something that just isn't their problem. Now, I'm not saying it's not a problem. And I'm not saying it doesn't need attention. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is between them and God. They maybe have a chip on their shoulder against God. Or they're not really willing to trust him. I went to two funerals yesterday. So I spent the day thinking a lot about life and about death. Finding a good career being successful, following your dreams, even having a good marriage. You know, these things are all overshadowed by the truly big things of life. You see that at the end of a person's life when they look back, those weren't the big things of their lives. 
And you know what the really important things of life are? They're the things that matter on the day of your death. You know, there are only a few reasons, it seems to me, why we're alive today. Why God continues to sustain us and give us life. And being reconciled to God and helping others to be reconciled to God are at the top of the list. And yet so many people, they live their lives and they're so busy and they do so many things. And those two things never even get into the picture. Uh, Recently we received subtle criticism from someone that uh, we are missing the point as a church that um, we should be focusing more on the real problems like war and corruption and injustice and abuse and poverty and disease. And the problem with that thinking is that those things are just symptoms. As long as mankind lives in rebellion against God, these things are going to continue. They're not the real problems. Until you deal with the root of the problem, you can't deal with the fruit of the problem. My son was in a uh, class at George Mason. He, his major was in conflict analysis and resolution. So they talked a lot about war and conflicts. And one day the professor in one of his classes asked, how many of you think that one day all wars will cease and there'll be no more war? And everyone in the class except him and one other raised their hands. You know, if we just work hard enough and evolve far enough, there'll be no more wars. Well, one day, there will be no more wars. But it won't happen by human evolution. It will happen by the power of God. You want to prove Jesus false? Solve poverty. Jesus said that we will always have the poor with us. So if you solve poverty, you'll prove that Jesus was wrong. But the problem is that in our present sin, we're, no matter how hard we try, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try, But we're never going to solve these problems. These problems aren't the real problems. How long do we have to work on fixing something before we accept the fact that the problem is way bigger than the way we see it? That the problem isn't really out there at all. It's in here. But thankfully, God in Christ is reconciling people to himself. The healing process has already begun, but it's not begun by human effort, 
by ingenious activities, by political policies. It's by Jesus Christ. This week I was reading in Psalm 30, and uh, I just love that psalm so much. And one of these days I'm just going to take like four or five weeks and just preach through Psalm 30. But, uh, you know, it's this psalm where the psalmist has been thrown into this terrible situation where he's not even sure he's going to live. And he's cry- he cries out to God in desperation. And here's his, his petition before the Lord. Here's his argument with the Lord of why he should not let him die. He says, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? In other words, what earthly good can I do if I'm dead? Will the, will the dust praise you before the people of the world? I mean, you know, what, what, I, I can't praise you. I can't declare your faithfulness if I'm in a grave somewhere. And the interesting thing to me in this psalm is that David saw himself as a person whose life was lived for God's good in the world. Such that the world would be worse off if he was taken away. Because his example of someone praising the Lord and his encouragement of others to praise the Lord and his telling of the faithfulness of God, that would be removed and the world would be worse off. Reminds me of like a father who's who's diagnosed with cancer. He's got young children. And, you know, he's given a 25% chance to live more than a few months. And he goes to the Lord on his knees and he says, Lord, I want to tell my children about Jesus. I want to declare your faithfulness to the next generation. I can't do that if you let me die. Friends, this prayer of David, presuming it was David, this prayer of David teaches us why we should want to keep living. If we want to live because we're having fun and we don't want it to end, we're fools. We are fools. It's like we really enjoy dumpster diving and eating the food that the people throw in the trash and digging it up. Oh, it's, it, you know, we don't want to go to the feast. We refuse the invitation of the feast. We're, we're, too, we're enjoying ourselves dumpster diving. That's why you're a fool if you're saying, this is fun, I don't want to leave here. We're so preoccupied with our friends that we're not interested in the friendship of the God who is love. And in whose love we're made to live. That's what we're made for. To live in his love.
This is the reason that Paul wanted to live when he talks about his struggle, whether he can't decide whether to, he wants to live or to die in Philippians 1. The reason he wants to live is so he can help others come to know what a wonderful God has sent his son Jesus to bring salvation to the world. Non-believers often criticize believers for diminishing the importance of the world's problems. Well, the world's problems, wars and famines and oppression, unrest and disease, those are terrible things. And we do care about them. And we are burdened by them and disturbed by them and We pray for them often here in church. And we should do more about them, honestly. But even though these things are a big deal, they're not the biggest deal. Ultimately, they're the fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. The root is our alienation from God and the eternal justice which hangs over the head of everyone who has not embraced Christ like a sentence of death. You know, we hear people all the time, and even Christians, and I I try never to do this because it, it trivializes something that should never be trivialized. But you hear people use hell as sort of an analogy of things that they experience, like, oh man, it was hell. I went through hell in that. But what if the worst human suffering on earth is mild in comparison to the agonies of eternal damnation, both in intensity and in duration, as the Bible teaches? What if those who spend their lives outraged at God for allowing human suffering on earth will themselves spend eternity experiencing the far greater suffering that we all deserve. And that's why helping folks avoid eternal suffering is even more important than helping them avoid earthly suffering. Now, there's no excuse for being unconcerned or uninvolved in helping the poor, the weak, the needy. God commanded it. And he's told us, you know, that parable in Matthew 25. You know, you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. Or you fail to do it to the least of my brethren, you fail to do it to me. But the most important aspect even, of doing that is being agents of reconciliation. If we feed the world but don't give them the bread of life, it doesn't really help them much. It's good to help people live longer. It's even better to help people live forever. All this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we recapitulate what Christ has done for sinners. In Timothy, we read something very similar to what we read this morning. That this is a worthy saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And here is that enacted. Jesus Christ, represented by the bread and the cup because it represents his body and his blood. Reconciling the world to himself or saving sinners through his death on the cross, through his body being broken, through his blood being poured out. And because of what he has done, we are fed, we are given life. The bread is not having a good day when we eat it. It gets broken, it gets crushed. You wouldn't want a video that shows you exactly what happens to that bread from beginning to end. You'd be just grossed out by the video. But the person who's eating it is getting life from it. In the same way, Christ suffered. He went through stuff that we wouldn't even want to look at. But through it, we have life. Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for this gift of your Son. We don't understand, Lord, why you looked at us and said, I want you to be mine. But dear Lord, it is the joy of our lives to say yes to you. And that's what we do, Lord, by putting our trust in Christ, by being reconciled to you through him. We pray, O oh Lord, that the work that you've begun in us, would you'd continue to develop, that we might grow more in him, know him better, yield more of our lives to him, delight in his goodness more fully. And even now, Lord, in this sacrament, we pray that you would draw us and transform us and come alongside us and fill us. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.